Hello, everyone. Um, we're going to read together from God's Word now. We're going to carry on and read the next chunk of the amazing chapter of Romans 8. And um, we're going to be reading verses 5 to 11 today. Um, the page number um, for that is on, your, on the screen. Okay, so Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 5. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Good morning. Are you sure? Last week, Gareth showed us that we can be sure. We can be sure that there is no condemnation for those who trust in Jesus because our salvation doesn't depend on us. But this morning, uh, instead of thinking, can we be sure that Jesus is enough, I want to ask the question that Sam's already asked. Are we sure that we are in Christ at all? What does it mean to be in Christ, and how do we know if we are? And if you're not a Christian here this morning, what would it mean for you to become a Christian, to become in Christ? Last week's passage finished um, with verse 4. Have a look down in your Bibles if you've um, still got them open. It says, The righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. And we might be left thinking about that last line. Have a look again. About what it means to live according to the Spirit. And how do I know if I'm doing it? So often it feels like we're losing in this battle to live for Jesus. That my life doesn't feel full of the Spirit. And not only that, but we seem to be losing the same battles to the same sins over and over it's easy to doubt and think, well, maybe I'm not a Christian at all. Well, Paul is going to explain what it means to live according to the Spirit. And at first reading, this passage might feel like this is a warning from Paul that he's going to tell us to try harder. As a teacher tells their pupils how to behave in school, like a pull-your-socks-up kind of message, that this is dry doctrinal warning from Paul. 
Romans 7, as we've seen, is all about assurance and encouragement. Verse 1, there is no condemnation. And verse 39, at the end of chapter 8, there is no separation. Nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus. So Paul isn't going to tell us to try harder this morning. Instead, Paul's got a deep message of encouragement for the Christian. For those who are battling away, he's going to encourage us. You do have the Spirit, even when your body tells you otherwise. And so as we look at these words this morning, I hope that our hearts are going to be full of joy, encouragement, that we are in Christ fully if we're trusting in him. So should we pray together that that will be the case? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that while we are weak, you are strong. Help us this morning to have complete confidence in your strength and not in our own. To know that if we're trusting in Jesus, that we have complete confidence of belonging to you and having the future hope of resurrection. Amen. We're going to look at this passage in two sections. Um, firstly, five to eight, two ways not to live, but two ways to be, where Paul is going to explain the drastic change that's happened for everyone who's put their trust in Jesus. And then in verses 9 to 11, victory in the Spirit, where Paul gets personal about what it means for us now and what it means for us in the future. So let's look together at 5 to 8. Two ways to be. Firstly, there is no middle ground. Have a look down again at verse 5. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. We're introduced to two kinds of people here. Those in accordance with the Spirit and those in accordance with the sinful nature. And when we think of those two categories, and then we think about our own life, it's easy to think that we're living somewhere in between, or constantly sliding between the two. Sometimes we feel full of the Spirit, full of joy and hope, but there are also times when we're discouraged, we feel cold, doubt, or we're falling into sin. If we graded ourselves out of ten, sometimes we might be an eight or a nine, but other times we might be a three or a four. I'm sure there are people here this morning who feel like a one and have felt like a one for a long time. We naturally think like that, don't we? But that isn't how Paul sees it. Verse 5, those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. And those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their mind set on what the Spirit desires. There are two options here. There's no middle ground. Either you're living according to the sinful nature or according to the spirit. It's worth saying that there isn't a verb here for to live. It could be translated literally, you are either according to the sinful nature or you're either according to the spirit. And in verse 6, one leads to death and one leads to life. Well, that's what we think it's going to say, and that's what I thought it said when I first read it, but it doesn't say that. Have a look at verse 6. It actually says... The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by, or literally the mind of the Spirit, is life and peace. So do you see what he's saying here? He's not saying if you're living a life that is a bit too sinful nature-y, 
then you need to sort your life out. He's actually saying that that kind of person doesn't exist. And he's saying the destination of those two categories is already decided. In other words, our destination isn't decided by how we live now, whether we're a three or an eight out of 10. Our destination is decided by whether we've already trusted in Christ and have the spirit. There's no middle ground. Well, secondly, what's the difference between these two lives? Those of the spirit have transformed minds. Have a look again, five and six. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the spirit is life and peace. Do you see the difference? It's a complete transformation of the mind. Before, the mind of the flesh sought to gratify only its own desires. But with the spirit, it's now set on what the spirit desires. Notice it's not an internal good versus bad battle going on here. You've seen the cartoons where there's a devil on one shoulder and an angel on the other, trying to persuade you either way. A mind torn between the two. That, that isn't what this is talking about. In both cases, the mind is fully made up. I think these days we could also use heart to describe what Paul is talking about. The heart's desire is fully made up. And notice the transformation has come externally from the spirit. He has given us this new desire instead of our natural sinful desires. And I think again on on first reading, we might feel like Paul has just dealt us a punch to the stomach. I don't feel controlled by the spirit. But notice he says it's our minds that have been transformed. He doesn't say our actions are transformed. This is a transformation from the inside out. It's an immediate change in our minds and hearts. And that's going to seep through gradually and transform all other areas of our lives. In verse 10, Paul says that even for the Christian, your body is dead because of sin. And instead of feeling like we've been punched in the stomach here, I think we can take real encouragement from these verses. In the previous chapter, in Romans chapter 7, Paul talks about his battle with his sinful nature. And whether you think Paul is speaking as a Christian or as an unbeliever in that chapter, either way, the contrast with chapter 8 is clear. Though the battle is not left behind, the hopelessness of the battle is left behind. Chapter 7, verse 24, 25. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Because we have the Spirit, we can now please God. We can start to live in line with the Spirit, even if that feels like slow progress. And if you're here this morning, um, and there's a particular sin that you're feeling like you're struggling with, or you feel weighed down at that this changed heart and mind is not your experience, well, don't be discouraged. Don't think that you're not a Christian. Without the Spirit, the mind is hostile to God. It's dead. And the body is also dead because of sin. And so for a non-believer, someone who doesn't have the spirit, the mind and the body 
are not in conflict. There is no battle because the mind of death and the body of death are perfectly aligned. And so actually, if you feel weighed down by sin this morning, you should be encouraged because feeling the struggle is evidence that your mind and body are not aligned. The conflict is evidence that you do have the spirit. And not only that, but God has the power to bring change in you, even if that's going to be slow. In fact, I think alarm bells should be going off in our minds if we don't struggle with sin, because that could be an indication that our mind hasn't been transformed, that there isn't conflict. Well, thirdly, notice how strongly Paul describes the mind of the flesh. Have a look down at verse 7. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. It'd be hard for Paul to write this in a stronger way, wouldn't it? Without the Spirit, our minds are hostile to God. Not just hostile sometimes, but they're at war with God. When we look around, it's easy to feel that there are good people in our world, isn't it? Or at least there are some people who do some good things sometimes. But this teaches us that those people don't please God, and they cannot. Without the Spirit bringing transformation in our hearts and minds, we can't please God. Everything that doesn't come from faith is sin, Romans 14, 23. As Christians, we might want to work towards outward transformation in areas of our world that we can. And that has to be a good and loving thing to do. And outward change does happen in our world. But these verses remind us that we, we can't bring about any truly inward change in others without the gospel of Jesus and the work of his spirit in our lives. And if you're not a Christian here today, or you're trying to figure out if you are or not, I hope that it's clear in this passage that we're not part of a try-hard religion. It's not about trying to live a good life, one that might look spirit-filled in order for God to be pleased with us, because we can't please him on our own. There's no middle ground. The decision has already been made. The destination is set. The real question is, have you been reconciled to God through Jesus? Are you still under the condemnation of verse 1 because you haven't come to Jesus for forgiveness? Well, if you haven't, then don't delay. Ask God for forgiveness through Jesus. And in that same moment, you'll receive his spirit and a transformed mind. And if that is you, do come and chat to somebody, um, someone you came with, or perhaps um, anyone up at the front that you've seen. And please don't go away and think this passage is just saying how good Christians are and how bad everybody else is. That would be to misunderstand everything that Paul has said. It's the spirit that brings change in Christians' lives. And so God is the one who should get all the glory. There are two ways to be. Well, secondly, victory in the spirit. Paul has set up a good base of understanding what it means to be in the spirit. But, he, but now he, he moves on and really unravels exactly what that means now for Christians and in the future. So we'll look at this in two halves. The guarantee of the Spirit and the guarantee of victory. Firstly, the guarantee 
of the Spirit. Have a look down, 9 and 10. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. Where before Paul was talking in general terms, those in the spirit, those according to the sinful nature. Now he speaks directly to the church, you. Paul's been laying down the theory, the two ways to be, and now he lays his pen down and looks directly into our eyes. Which category do you fit into? And his explanation feels a bit long-winded. Why not just have one sentence here? Couldn't he just say, you, however, are in the spirit, full stop? Why all this extra details? Well, I think it's because Paul is trying to make something absolutely clear. And so he uses these two or three verses to show all the realities of what is going on for those with the Spirit. Have a look again. We've got the Spirit described three different ways. We've got a positive and negative affirmation, all sorts of implications. It's easy to get confused, bogged down. But I think the big point Paul is trying to make here is that all the benefits of being in the Spirit can't be separated out. If you're in the Spirit, then everything else follows. I studied um, maths at university, and one of the first things they teach you is there are two types of if statements. Um, The first one, if, the normal if statement is if something is true, then the next thing must be true. So for example, a parent might say, if you finish your homework, you can go out and play football. But that doesn't mean that every child outside playing football has done their homework. It's only one way. But an if, an only if statement, means that if any one of the two things is true, the other one must be true. So if a referee blows the final whistle in football, you know the game is finished. And if the game is finished, you know the referee has blown his whistle. Because you can't finish a game of football any other way. If one is true, the other must be true as well. Paul in these verses is trying to be as explicit as possible. He's making if and only if statements. If one of these things is true, all of them are true. Have a look down, verse 9. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. Do you see the logic? If you're of the Spirit, you must have the Spirit. Belonging to Christ can't be separated from having the Spirit. If Christ is in you, you're alive. And do you see how they all interlink together? Paul's making sure there's no confusion here. There's no grades of being Christian. You can't belong to Christ, have the Spirit, but not have life. You can't have the Spirit, have life, but not belong to Christ. When someone says um, they're spiritual but they don't believe in Jesus, well, that can't be right, can it? Contradicts what Paul is saying. You can't have the Spirit and not belong to Christ. Likewise, when a Christian says um, that they're not as spiritual as another Christian, well, that's not right either, is it? Because everyone who has the Spirit belongs to Christ. You're not missing out on anything. There's no second wave of the Spirit for some believers and not others. These verses are true 
for every Christian at all time, in every place, ever. There's no middle ground. Well, secondly, notice the interweaving descriptions of the Spirit here. Paul deliberately uses um, three, three ways of describing the Spirit. The Spirit of God, the Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. Because you can't separate the work of God into separate parts. God's Spirit is at work sanctifying us, changing our minds like we've seen. But in the same breath, Christ has freed us from condemnation because of his righteousness. Last week in verse 4, we saw the righteous requirements of the law are fully met in us. And we asked the question, does that mean Christ on the cross justifying us, making us perfect? Or is it the Spirit's sanctifying work in us? And the answer is kind of both. But more than that, it's not really the right question because you can't separate the two. You can't have the sanctifying work of the Spirit without the justifying work of Jesus on the cross. They go together. And so to ask, why should I obey Christ if I'm already forgiven? doesn't make sense as a question. Because if you've been justified by Jesus, if you've been forgiven, then your mind has also been transformed to want to obey him. So what's Paul hoping us um, to understand from this section? Well, can you see again how encouraging it is? No matter how we're feeling right now or tomorrow morning, whether we feel like we're an eight or we feel like we're a one, it doesn't affect whether these verses are true. These verses are always true for you if you trust in Christ. Paul is saying that if you're trusting in Christ, then you need to know that you belong to him. If you're trusting in Christ, then you need to know the Spirit is at work to transform you. If you're trusting in Christ, even though our body feels weighed down heavily because of sin, you need to know that you have Jesus' righteousness. And finally, as we turn to our final section, if you're trusting in Christ, then you need to know that you've got guaranteed eternal life through him. Final section guarantee of victory. Paul's given us assurance for the present, but our final if and only if statement assures us of the future. And it's important that we bring the weight of everything that we've seen so far to understand how big this is. Not only are we dead in the sense that we physically will die and will be buried, but we've also seen that even while we live, we are dead. Verse 10, we saw that our body is dead because of sin, even if we have the Spirit in us. Our minds have been transformed, but we still feel the cling of death constantly. There's an ongoing battle between our mind and heart's desire and what our sinful nature keeps pulling us back towards. And so we're dead in two ways, both physically we will die, but our body is already dead because of sin. And so as we come to verse 11, have a look down again. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. We're going to be raised in more ways than one as well. We'll be physically raised from the dead, never to die again. But also the cling of death because of our sinful nature 
we'll be gone as well. We'll be resurrected in that sense too. To use the language of Romans 8, we're going to be redeemed. Have a look at these um, words from a bit later in in Romans 8, verse 23. We who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Raised and redeemed, given life as we were always made to be. Where our spirit-given desire and our transformed minds will now perfectly be aligned with our no longer dead bodies. Well, how do we know that? We'll have a look down again. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. We know because Christ has already been raised. If we trust in him, we know we have the same spirit. We've seen that already. And so there's no question. We're going to be raised too because he was raised. Because we have the same spirit. Let's conclude together. Are you sure? I hope that you've seen today that we can be sure. If we're trusting in Christ, we can be sure that we have the spirit. That we belong to Christ and have his righteousness. Our body is dead because of sin. We're in a daily battle, but instead of being discouraged in the battle, thinking that we're not a Christian, we can take courage and know that even as we lose battles to sin, and maybe the same battles over and over, we know that victory will be won in the end. And as a church family, when we or our brother or sister is struggling in the battle, they feel like they're losing. If we really fill ourselves with this sure confidence, we're going to keep picking each other up, aren't we? And we're going to fill each other with the hope of future victory so that we can fight, hopefully, pointing each other forward to the day when we will be redeemed. We'll no longer battle these bodies of death but we'll live perfectly how we were made to be. Let's pray together, shall we? Heavenly Father, thank you for the deep encouragement your word gives to us when we're struggling in the fight against our own bodies. In times when we feel like we're just clinging on, help us to know that we are in Christ and belong to him. Thank you that you have guaranteed victory for us through raising Jesus from the dead. Please help us to fight sin, hopefully, knowing that one day you'll make us perfect forever. And help us to have our eyes fixed on that hope. In Jesus' name, amen.